0: So if I, I mentioned to you at dinner a couple of weeks ago how I've developed the practice over the last year now of reading large chunks of the New Testament to myself aloud in the morning, uh, mainly to Im- um, improve my speech following the stroke and partly to recover or reconnect with my previous life as a New Testament scholar, which has kind of been a bit overshadowed by my uh, recent uh, appointment. I found it to be a hugely rewarding thing to do on all kinds of levels. Uh, I've noticed verses that I'd never noticed before, uh, such as Stephen's lovely comment in Acts 7 that when Moses was born, he was beautiful before God, like his beautiful baby that God noticed. Uh, Paul's question to King Agrippa, why is it thought incredible by any view that God raises the dead? Why is that so hard to believe? Or Paul's constant emphasis on his own integrity in contrast to the fake news that his opponents in, the, in Corinth were peddling, saying, in a text we should send to the emperor in the White House, we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. I've also found that listening to large chunks of texts has given me a much stronger sense of the overall narrative drive behind the story being told. Realised again just how powerful, how gripping, how confronting the larger story is, how it really is the greatest story ever told. Especially being impressed by the dark, menacing forces of violence at work behind the scenes, uh, resisting and opposing the proclamation of the kingdom. The opponents of Jesus and of the first Christians were absolutely determined to kill them not just to oppose them but absolutely determined to kill them by whatever means legal or illegal that were available to them so in the gospels jesus is constantly keeping one step ahead of those who are trying to lynch him until the time came when he surrendered himself into their hands the same is true of the first christians in acts Uh, for example When Paul arrived in Jerusalem in Acts 23, no fewer than 40 people bound themselves by a sacred oath not to eat or drink anything until they had killed him. Uh, They plotted to ambush him on the road when he was being returned from Caesarea to Jerusalem uh, under Roman guard until somebody spilled the beans and the plot had to be aborted. So the saboteurs must have been the starved to death. Uh, or else decided more likely that their sacred oath wasn't that sacred after all. So the stakes were very high for those who joined the Jesus movement. What was it that compelled them to do so? What was it that actually gave rise to this early Christian movement? What propelled it to become the radically different kind of religious community uh, that that it became in the ancient world? I think the answer to that question lies in three things. One was the immense moral and spiritual impact of Jesus himself, the, as someone who embodied the presence of God's love and power in an, to an unprecedented degree. This, the historical memory of Jesus' character stamps all the documents that were created by this new movement especially, of course, the four Gospels, but beyond that as well. So the memory of Jesus was clearly one of the things that helped give birth to this movement. But that memory would have weakened and been lost over time, uh, especially given his shameful end on a cross, were it not for two other things at work. One of those was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and all of that unique event implied about his significance and what God had accomplished through him. The first Christians were absolutely clear that Jesus' resurrection had changed everything. In Acts 24, Paul tells the Sanhedrin, it is about the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. The other thing, the third thing that gave birth to this Thing we call the church, this new religious movement, was the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit in the life and experience of Jesus and of the church that followed him. It was clearly a palpable reality that brought a sense of love and joy and peace and power and freedom to these first believers, and perhaps most importantly, a sense of equality with one another. An equality between rich and poor, between Jew and Gentile, between male and female, between slave and free. An equality that was born of the fact that they all had equal access to the work of the Spirit. So the things that gave rise to the church and and that sustained it was this firm belief that Jesus, a prophet mighty in power and word, had risen from the dead and had poured out his Spirit on his followers, as a new way of continuing to be present among them on earth. And this tangible experience of the Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, it's even uh, once called in the book of Acts, this powerful experience of the Spirit was a dominant, all pervasive reality in their collective experience. Uh, however hard it is for us, maybe, to relate to that at times, it's an unavoidable. Conclusion just from reading the documents and reading them um, with your ears open to this The, the life of the Spirit, the life of the Spirit of the risen Christ, was a proof of the pudding that salvation had actually dawned. Which is why one New Testament scholar says trying to explain early Christianity without referring to the Spirit is like trying to explain modern civilization without ever mentioning electricity. And certainly for Paul, the Christian age was above all else the age of the Spirit. In contrast to the age that preceded it, the age of the law, the age of flesh, the age of sin, the age of death, this now was the age of the Spirit. But why the Spirit? Uh, What does why does the Holy Spirit have such immense importance, uh, both in the life and ministry of Jesus and in the life of the early church? What does it actually mean? To answer that, I think we need to go right back to the very beginning of the story and get some sense of the role of the Spirit in the life of Israel and in the expectation of the Jewish people at the time of Jesus. So in the Old Testament, the expression Spirit of God, Ruach, is a Hebrew word for spirit. The expression of the spirit of God refers broadly to, life's, uh, to God's life-giving power and activity in the world. So the spirit, in a sense, is God in action, or if you like, the God that human beings can experience. This is the way that God is actually engaging with the creation. At the most basic level, the spirit of God is the life principle of creation, that divine force that animates all living things and animates human beings in particular. The word ruach in Hebrew uh, can, can sometimes mean spirit, it can sometimes mean wind, it can sometimes mean breath. These things are all conceptually uh, interlinked. The very first sentence in the Bible, the very, very first sentence in the Bible refers to God's breath or God's spirit as the enlivening power of God at work in creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was a formless void and darkness uh, covered the face of the earth while a ruach, while the spirit from God, swept over the face of the waters. When Adam is created out of clay, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living being. So I guess you could conclude that every breath we breathe, the very participation in life itself, is a participation in God's Spirit. But God's Spirit is spoken of in two other more specific ways in the Old Testament. One is a kind of temporary boosting of ability. Uh, God... Gives the spirit. It's often said to select individuals, kings, and to prophets, to warriors, to singers, to artisans. This impartation of the spirit to enhance their natural abilities, so that they can achieve extraordinary tasks. If you read, for example, in Exodus 35 about the um, people are called to build the tabernacle, it's like these these natural artisans are given an extra boost in order to achieve even more extraordinary. Um, outputs. The other way in which God's Spirit is spoken of in the Old Testament and the Jewish uh, tradition, and indeed throughout the New Testament, perhaps the most important way God's Spirit is spoken of is as a source of prophetic inspiration. So God's Spirit is associated with the inspiration of the prophets, imparting words to the prophets to speak on God's behalf. When he spoke to me, Ezekiel writes, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking, uh, speaking to me. So when the prophets spoke in Israel, it was God's Spirit who spoke through them. If the prophets fell silent, then in some sense, God's Spirit had fallen silent. And it appears that at the time of Jesus, at least some Jews thought that the Notable lack of great prophets in their day, the absence of the great prophets like Elijah or Uzziah or Jeremiah, the great prophets of old, the fact that there weren't any more of those dudes around was a sign that the spirit had been temporarily withdrawn from Israel, that the spirit was no longer speaking to his people in the way uh, that was true of the past. At the same time, there was clearly a widespread expectation that the Spirit would return in abundance at the end of time, in the eschaton, in the age of salvation. When God's kingdom finally came, there would be a generous impartation of God's Spirit to Israel, and it might even spill over beyond Israel to the whole of humanity. So Ezekiel writes, Therefore say to the house of Israel, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe all my commandments. Or in the better-known text in Joel 2, afterward I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days I will pour out my spirit. So the prophets look forward to this coming flood of God's spirit on the people at the end of the age. And they often predicted that God's special agent of salvation to bring in this new age of God's reign, the Messiah or the end-time prophet, that this agent would himself be uniquely endowed with the Spirit to bring in God's saving justice. For example, Isaiah 42, a text that Matthew later on picks up and applies to Jesus, but Isaiah 42 reads, Here is my servant whom I am upholding, My chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his teaching. According to the New Testament story, this long-awaited hope for the end-time outpouring of the Holy Spirit on God's people has now been fulfilled. And it's been fulfilled in two distinct stages. The first is at the birth and baptism of Jesus, who is empowered by the Spirit to become this agent of salvation, this bearer of God's kingdom. And then is fulfilled at the birth and baptism of the church on the day of Pentecost, when Jesus' experience of the Spirit is extended to all his followers in the city. Prior to Pentecost, Jesus was the sole recipient of the end-time Spirit. At Pentecost, we're told, all were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Thereafter, in attempting to explain this um, disturbing event, Peter stands up in the street, With the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, saying, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days. So, interestingly, often Luke, Talks about men and women. He draws attention often to the sort of gender equality that takes place in the early church. In those days, I'll pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Again, this note of prophecy, this this inspired speech, is what you would expect of the spirit when the spirit comes in fullness. What made this Pentecostal fulfillment uh, possible? was Jesus' own prior reception of the Spirit and the completion of a saving mission. So Peter, in his sermon in Acts 2, goes on to say to the crowd, this Jesus God raised up, and all of us are eyewitnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured this out, which you both see and hear. So Jesus' relationship to the spirit was one of both being the unique bearer of the end-time spirit and the dispenser of that spirit to others. So let me just say a little bit more about that, the bearer and the dispenser. So at the time of Jesus, people were hoping for this renewal of the spirit's prophetic voice and power in the future age at the coming of God's reign on earth. It's uh, it's significant, therefore, at the beginning of Luke's gospel, there's this kind of sudden outburst of the prophetic spirit in connection with the births of both John the Baptist and Jesus. There's a kind of last last flare-up of prophetic inspiration from the old era before Jesus comes and announces the kingdom. So both Zechariah and Elizabeth, John's parents, were filled with the Holy Spirit, and as a result, utter prophetic oracles. Similarly, the aged priest Simeon, upon whom the Holy Spirit rested, Luke says, uh, praises God in the Spirit and offers a, prayer, a prophecy over the infant Jesus. Zechariah is told that his son John will be, quote, filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, and the hand of the Lord, which is the Old Testament metaphor for God's Spirit, will rest upon him. So John the Baptist, in Luke's account, is depicted as the last and greatest of the Spirit-inspired prophets of old. And there's an interesting kind of um, ambiguity in the Gospels about John's relationship to Elijah. Um, People weren't sure whether Jesus was Elijah, the the awaited prophet. Jesus seems to imply that it was actually John who was the awaited fulfillment of the prophecy uh, of Elijah's return. Uh, so John is the kind of the, the, the last gasp, if you like, of, uh, of, of the prophetic ministry in, in Israel. But in Jesus, the Spirit is operative in a new and more powerful way still. At his baptism in Jordan, at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus receives a kind of second unique impartation of the Spirit to equip him for his uh, mission. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Not just a temporary kind of endowment of ability. It remained upon him. The one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So, although already conceived of the Spirit at his birth, here Jesus assumes his role as God's royal or messianic son, the Messiah, of course, was a royal figure, a descendant of David. He assumes his role as God's agent of salvation, the one who will establish God's messianic kingdom on earth. So, the descent of the Spirit at the baptism of Jesus is like a royal coronation uh, ceremony. It's what marks out his messianic identity and imparts to Jesus the authority to act as God's agent. Uh, So this idea that the Spirit is a kind of coronation of of the Messiah, if you like, uh, is, is clear when Peter, in Acts 10, when he gets up and speaks to Cornelius about about what happened back then. He says to Cornelius, after the baptism that John announced, God anointed, and that word there is, is a word to be, to be made the Messiah, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, not with oil as you would normally do to a king. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. It's interesting that in Luke's account, the Spirit descends on Jesus as he was praying after his baptism. Uh, Luke, um, who has so much to say about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, Luke insists that prayer is the means by which the dynamic power of the Spirit is apprehended and becomes effective in the life of its recipients. Prayer is the connection that makes the Spirit's power enter into the life of the recipient. Uh, Jesus himself suggests this. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more would your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I, I, I was re- reflecting on this when I was preparing this talk I don't think prayer is here understood as a kind of magical technique, or as a kind of arbitrary prerequisite in order to get God to press the button and uh, and do the the you know make the things bells and smells and all the rest of that happen. <laughs> I think prayer is important because it's a sign of the relational and peaceful nature of the Spirit's work. The Spirit is invited, not coercively imposed. And the task of the Spirit, perhaps the primary task of the Spirit, is to establish a sense of personal connection with God, personal intimacy with God. This seems to have even been true of Jesus. Acts 10, uh, sorry, Luke 10, uh, Luke writes, At that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. So the sense of this joyful identification with God as Father seems to have been mediated even to Jesus through the experience of the Spirit. But as well as that, Jesus' experience of the Spirit was manifested in two other ways in particular. One was in deeds of power and deliverance, miracles if you like. First, it appears that Jesus had to confront and defeat the temptation to use his extraordinary power for self-serving ends. Uh, I guess there are two occasions in which this was a real issue for Jesus. One was at the very beginning after uh, after his baptism and he goes into the wilderness and then again, it's Caesarea Philippi when he turns his head towards Jerusalem for the final time, knowing what's waiting him at the end. And uh, Peter tries to talk him out of it, and Jesus snaps his head off. Um, he says, get behind me, Satan. It's almost like he's suddenly taken back to this early event at the beginning of his life, of his ministry, where he had to really confront and defeat the temptation to use power for his own ends. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit for 40 days in the wilderness, tempted by the devil. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. So having established his kind of sovereign independence from demonic or worldly forms of power, Jesus turned toward the poor and the oppressed and used the Spirit's power to bring freedom and healing and deliverance. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. There's again this coronation connection. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And he could have heard a pin drop. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So God's kingdom promised deliverance and dignity and delight to the oppressed. And it was the power of God's gracious spirit, not force of arms, that Jesus used to achieve those blessings. As he said in a statement that even the most sceptical of New Testament scholars believes is almost certainly a sign of the voice of Jesus. Jesus. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The Spirit is the power that enabled God's kingdom to become a reality. So deeds of power was clearly the the manifestation of Jesus anointing and empowerment by the Spirit. But as well as being manifested in deeds of power, Jesus' possession of the Spirit was also manifested in words of power. Jesus claimed that the Spirit rested upon him to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So again, just reflecting on this, is one thing to do deeds of power. It's another thing to proclaim those deeds as evidence of God's will for society, in contrast to the way things currently operate. That's dangerous. If Jesus has stuck to doing good deeds for the poor in private, he would have never been crucified. He would have been given a Queen's service medal, I'm sure. The problem was he also proclaimed his deeds. As evidence of God's revolutionary new social order, which threatened the existing powers of domination that benefited quite well, thank you, from the way things were. It was Jesus' words that killed him more than his works. Well, those works got him into trouble as well. It was his words that killed him more than his works. And it was the Spirit that gave him the power and the courage to speak out. And I'm sure he must have needed a lot of courage. The same is true of the first Christians. At the end of his ministry, Jesus tells the disciples, there is risen Jesus, tells the disciples to remain in Jerusalem until they receive the promise of the Father while staying with them, he charged them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but before many days you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You shall, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Again, for the first Christians, it was not their deeds of power that stirred up animosity. It was their insistence on bearing witness to the name and lordship of Jesus. That's what triggered violence against them. Again, this to me is just on the surface of the text. It's very, very clear to me. So in Acts 4, Peter and and John uh, are hold before the Sanhedrin. They they are questioned about a miracle they had performed, and then they're told to stop talking about Jesus. And uh, they're released. And they go back and join the church in Jerusalem that decides to have a prayer meeting in light of what's happened. And this is what's um, included in what they pray. So They stand up and they say this to God. For in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, gather together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through, your, through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. So clearly then, the Holy Spirit played a vital part in the life of Jesus. Despite his unique conception by the Spirit, his human relationship with God was mediated by the Spirit. And it was marked by a sense of familial intimacy, love, and joy. I guess the same is true for us as well. Paul writes in Galatians 4.6, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying... And presumably it's a cry of joy, Abba, Father, the Spirit of His Son communicates to us that sense of relatedness to God as an intimate parent. Or a verse in Romans five five, which you know to me is, 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 a, is such an experiential metaphor. Here, Paul says, God's love has been poured into our hearts. It's like a bucket. I was thinking, when I was in the States one time, I was introduced to chocolate wine, and I was thinking of a nice bucket load of chocolate wine. God's Spirit has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The experiential nature of the language is so obvious. So the Spirit was a source of connection with God and a source of love and joy in that connection. The Spirit was also, for Jesus, a source of miracle-working power that enabled him to bring God's kingdom to earth, not just as an idea, but as a transforming social reality, a power that was directed at meeting the needs of the poor, the sick and the oppressed, not at seizing the throne and installing God's new regime, by violence. That's, I'm sure, part of what the wilderness temptations are about, is not using power as power usually is used in the world. Again, the same is true of the first believers in Acts. They always used the Spirit's power to meet human need and to embrace outsiders never to seize power and wealth for themselves. But perhaps most of all, the Spirit for Jesus was a source of authority and courage to proclaim the truth of God's revolutionary kingdom, both to those who welcomed it, the sick and the poor. It's good news for them. And to those who resisted it and who had the means to silence him and made every effort to ensure that they could silence him through violence. So bearing witness to God's self-disclosure in Christ and what that means for the way that existing social and political structures work is sometimes more costly than doing good deeds because doing good deeds themselves is something that usually attracts people's admiration. But to oppose the structures of oppression requires courage. And for that, we need the Spirit of Jesus. So let me finish with a prayer (coughs) that I came across (coughs) uh, of St. Bonaventure, a prayer to the Holy Spirit, which I think I came across after I prepared the talk, but it seems to capture uh, much of what I've been talking about. Lord Jesus as god's spirit came down and rested upon you may the same spirit rest on us bestowing his sevenfold gifts first grant us a gift of understanding by which your precepts may enlighten our minds second grant us counsel by which we may follow in your footsteps on the path of righteousness. Third, grant us courage by which we may ward off the enemy's attacks. Fourth, grant us knowledge by which we can distinguish good from evil. Fifth, grant us piety for which we may acquire compassionate hearts. Sixth, grant us fear which may draw back from evil and submit to what is good. Seventh, grant us wisdom that we may taste fully of the life-giving sweetness of your love. Amen.